0: Good morning. Welcome to River Oaks Community Church. Thank you all for being here today. Welcome also to those of you joining us online. We're thankful to have you here. I want to say welcome back to um, Pastor Wes Tuttle along with his wife Brene and son Ben. They've returned from uh, 11 or 12 days in Croatia where Wes was leading worship from people, uh, for people from 26 different nations. Wes mentioned that uh, while there, there were a number of people from Ukraine, but also from Israel. And uh, the folks from Israel, some of them were not able to return home at the end of the conference because what had happened uh, in Israel last weekend. Um, Reminded, as I think of, of heard what he said about Ukraine and people from Israel of our great need to pray for those two parts of the world. So before we get into the scripture today, would you join me again as we, we come together as the Lord's church to hold up these things in prayer? Father, we come before you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one to whom has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And Lord, in that great name, we pray, as you said, for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray as our missionary Randall Ford has asked that you would restrain the forces of Hezbollah from entering into uh, this war. And Father, we pray for great wisdom for those making decisions. Father, we pray for protection of innocent life in the midst of all this complicated situation. Lord, above all, may hearts be turned to Jesus as the way and the truth and the life. And Lord, we pray the same thing for those in Ukraine. We pray for an end to this war, for protection uh, for the people of Ukraine. And at the same time, that hearts be turned toward you. Lord, this world seems to be in quite a mess, but our eyes are on you. You are sovereign. You are ruler. You are Lord over all. Call us to pray often for what you're doing in this world. And Lord, how we thank you for the peace we enjoy here, to be able to come together to worship, to uh, gather and study your word. And as we do that this morning, would you open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of your word, and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you again for being here. If you are listening, when Pebbles read our passage just a moment ago, you you, uh, may realize we're in for a... Uh, an interesting passage of Scripture today, to say the least, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you're just joining us, we have begun a study of the New Testament book of First Corinthians. It was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. Corinth was a place Paul had brought the gospel, and the account of that is found in the book of Acts chapter 18. Paul's later writing back to the church, addressing certain issues in the church, certain problems there, and at the same time, responding to questions from the church. Today, we deal with a matter of judging, uh, calling for judgment on someone who was doing something immoral in the church. Now, someone may think when, when you hear Paul calling for judgment, but I thought we weren't supposed to judge, thought we weren't supposed to judge people. After all, didn't Jesus say, and I expect many of you know these words, two of the best-known words of Jesus from his Sermon on the Mount, judge not. Matthew 7 verse 1, judge not. Most people know those words spoken by Jesus. Fewer people know that Jesus said in John seven twenty-four, judge with right judgment. So which is it? The same English word used in each verse, the same Greek word used in each verse. Judge not, judge with right judgment. The answer, of course, depends on the all-important context, the setting in which the words are spoken. The best way to understand a verse of Scripture is to understand it in its context. One of the most important principles for interpreting the Bible I could ever share with you is this, always understand Scripture in its setting, in its context the same words spoken in a different setting can have a very different meaning for example let's say that you live on the 10th floor of a crowded apartment building and at 2 a.m in the morning you wake up and you smell smoke you open the door to the uh, hallway outside your apartment and uh, you smell something burning the hallway is filled with smoke you hear stirring around, and you shout out to everybody in your apartment, there's a fire. And everybody starts fleeing for the fire escape. But let's say, last weekend, you were with our students at campaigns, who I understand they had a great uh, fall retreat. And after the worship one evening, uh, some are, are hanging around singing a few more songs. Some have gone to the gym to shoot baskets. Some are are kicking a soccer ball under the lights. And you, one of the youth leaders, said, look, we'll do s'mores in 20 minutes. First, got to build a big bonfire. I'll call you when it's ready. So in 20 minutes, you shout out, there's a fire. And everybody comes running with their bags of marshmallows in hands. Same words, different setting." In the first instance, people are fleeing away, and the second, people are are coming. This is why we have to understand an issue like judging. When to judge and when not to judge in context, in its setting. That's important as we approach 1 Corinthians chapter 5 today, because in this case, the Apostle Paul rebukes the church And he probably has in mind specifically the leaders of the church for not judging something. Now, what I'd like to do this morning is, first of all, do a quick run through 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Just take a a quick overview of this chapter and then talk a bit about when the Bible calls us to judge and when the Bible calls us not to judge. First of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're just going to quickly run through the chapter. You'll see the, every verse in the chapter on the screen. It's a short chapter of 13 verses. First of all, we see in this particular chapter flagrant immorality in the local church should be judged. Again, as Pebble read a moment ago, Pebbles read a moment ago, it is actually reported there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife. Now, Paul is upset about this. He's heard it's going on in the church. He says, and you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who's done this thing be removed from among you. This should not have been allowed to continue flagrantly in the church. Though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, in his if presence, I have already pronounced judgment. Paul's calling for a judgment." And he's rebuking the church because they did not judge this behavior. He's rebuking them for allowing open, flagrant, known, unrepented of immorality to go unaddressed in the church. He continues in verses 4 and 5 making the point that godly judgment and discipline may be necessary for the salvation or the spiritual health of the offender. Paul says, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Wow. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What does this mean? (laughs) I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. And without a real clear leading of the Lord, I'm not sure I want to try to deliver someone to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, but I expect it means something like excommunication, something like withdrawing fellowship and prayer from someone. Why? To punish the man? To get revenge? No. No. The goal is not revenge. The goal of godly discipline is is spoken by Paul. So his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What he's saying is that discipline and judgment in certain cases are necessary for a person to come into the light, to come into repentance, to experience salvation. In most churches of any size, there are many believers, but also people who are not genuinely believers. Jesus hinted at this in his teaching that's sometimes called the the parable of the wheat and the tares or the wheat and the weeds growing together that ultimately in the the final day there would be a judgment about genuine believers and those who are not. Paul knows there are people in the church who are not genuine believers that need to be brought into the light. And he's saying this may well be part of that process. Discipline is necessary often. Thirdly, Paul makes the point in this chapter that unaddressed sin can spread and infect others. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Paul is using the example of leaven, like you put into a lump of dough that spreads throughout the whole lump. He's using it as an example of influence. Allowing this to go unaddressed, unchecked in the church, he's saying, causes this sort of thing to spread. What the church allows, it essentially endorses. Unaddressed, flagrant, open sin in the church affects others in the church. It weakens the the, the purity and wholeness of the church. And Paul goes on to say that the gospel calls us away from this to newness of life. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival not with the old leaven of malice and evil, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now it gets harder. Verses 9 through 11. Paul makes the point that believers should withdraw fellowship from those who claim to be believers yet live in flagrant immorality. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I'm glad he says what he says next, or or we'd all have a problem associating with a lot of people we know. He says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then, you would need to go out of the world. He's right about that, isn't he? But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, who claims to be a believer, says, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. Yes, I follow the Lord. Yes, he's my Lord. If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunker, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Wow. Again, Paul is not calling us to withdraw from people we work with or live near or know who live in these uh, uh, ways of immorality he lists here. He's talking about people, in my understanding, in a local church body. And he's saying flagrant, unrepented of sin must be addressed in the local church body and then finally he makes this point we are not called to judge the world but to make judgments necessary to protect the church from evil now he's just said I'm not telling you withdraw fellowship from all the immoral people in the world you'd have to go out of the world that's a lot of the people around us What do I have to do with judging outsiders? Outsiders are those outside the church body. Is it not those inside the church you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Paul is not calling us believers to make judgments on what the world's doing out there. People without Jesus are going to do what people without God do. But in the church, he calls for a certain order, a certain uh, manner of life. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We know that. None is righteous. None is perfect. But flagrant, unrepented of sin in the church, such as was in the case at Corinth, must be addressed. And let me stress that I, I, I think the primary responsibility for doing this typically falls on the leadership of a local church. Uh, Typically that would be pastors, elders, may also include small group members as well, or team leaders. God typically gives you authority to make judgments where you have responsibility. That's certainly true for those of you who are parents. You have responsibility to make judgment calls often in the home. And often you're called to to discipline your children. Why? For their good, for their health, for their well-being. Not to satisfy your anger, I hope. Not for revenge, certainly. But for their good, for their wholeness. Just like Paul's calling for judgment on this man so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. That he might be brought to repentance. Isn't that in the best interest of this man? Is it really in his best interest that they would say, Oh, we love you, brother. Judge not. You do what you want to do. They could do that and result in that man's eternal separation from God by letting him continue in that path. Paul says you need to call for judgment. You need to address this so that this man's spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So, chapter 5. Now, let's take a step back and talk about this whole matter of judging. I expect we all have some questions about this, when to judge and when not to judge. I'd like to start by, by pointing out some of the things the Bible does call us to judge, things about which God calls us to make judgment, and then talk about those things concerning which we're not to make judgments. And again, we understand this by understanding Scripture in its setting, in its context. That's how we interpret Scripture properly. Things to judge in the church, as we've already seen, flagrant immorality. As Paul says, it's, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Flagrant immorality. Is this the only place in the New Testament we find this? No. No. No, we find Jesus giving the same guidance to us in the book of Revelation. In chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, there are certain addresses given by Christ to certain local churches. And the words you see on the screen are from Jesus' guidance to, I think, the leaders uh, he has in mind of the church at Pergamum. Notice what he says. Through the Apostle John, who uh, is credited with writing the book of Revelation. But I have a few things against you. That you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. Now, wait a minute. He's not speaking to the people there who are uh, teaching the others to sacrifice idols and practice sexual immorality. He's speaking to the leaders of the church and says, I've got this against you. You're tolerating this. You're allowing this to go on. Therefore, repent. If not, I'll come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He says I have something against you because you're allowing this to go on unchecked in the church. Furthermore, the church at Thyatira, a few verses later, he addresses this way. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. These two sins, idolatry and sexual immorality, are mentioned together over and over in Scripture. They're found uh, as emphasized in both Old and New Testament. Idolatry, sexual immorality. Now again, who's being rebuked here? This is not addressed to this woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is misleading people. It's addressed to the people in the church who are tolerating this, who are allowing this, who are not judging this, who are saying, oh, judge not, uh, we're, we're not going to judge you. you can go ahead and say what you want to say and do what you want to do. We're not judging you. No. Jesus is rebuking the church for that sort of an attitude, for not seeking to preserve the purity of his church by making a right judgment. Things to judge, number one, flagrant immorality, because what a local church allows, it essentially endorses. Secondly, things to judge, false teaching, distortion of the gospel, very clearly the New Testament teaches. You've got to make a, a judgment about teaching allowed in the church. Jesus said to beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. False prophets don't come dressed as false prophets. Those who do Satan's work come as deceivers, typically. You'll recognize them by their fruits. He's calling us to make a judgment. The apostle Paul said it even more strongly in Galatians chapter 1, and verses 8 and 9, when he said, even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Wow. Paul felt strongly about not allowing the gospel to be distorted and doing great harm. False doctrine must be judged. as we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. And then the Apostle John, in 2 John chapter 1, John is known as the apostle of love. He's the one who wrote, let us love one another, for love is of God. God is love. He wrote so much about the love of God, but when it comes to false doctrine, when it comes to false teaching, John calls the church to make a judgment. He says, many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Here the apostle of love calls us to make a judgment. There are a number of things Scripture calls us to judge. I won't touch on all of them, but we should also include this. There uh, there's guidance from the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians about judging ourselves to make sure we're rightly related to God and ready to take the Lord's Supper. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. And in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 28 to 31, we read these words. Let a person examine himself then And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. In this context, in this setting, he's using the word judge to refer to examining ourselves to make sure we're ready to take the Lord's Supper. That's when we take communion here. We usually take a moment to pray, to, um, to wait on the Lord. It's a good time to search our hearts, most importantly, to be sure we've really put our faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. We're not taking communion as some kind of just religious ritual that doesn't have any meaning, but also to search our hearts for sins that should be confessed and, and things of this nature. So these are some of the things that we're to judge. I think there are even more in Scripture, but I'll I'll pause there and shift for a moment to things we're not to judge. First of all, the heart motives of other people. Judge not, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, that you be not judged. Now, when Jesus said these words, I believe... He was referring to the tendency we have to judge the hearts of other people when we really don't understand or know what's going on in their hearts. The Apostle Paul spoke of this in the passage we looked at last week, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, when he said, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. See, context makes all the difference. Chapter 5, he's rebuking them for not making a judgment. Chapter 4, he's telling them when not to make a judgment. Or, Or rather, he's telling them they had judged when they should not have made a judgment. Notice what he goes on to say. When the Lord comes, he'll bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart. That's what we don't understand about other people. We don't know really the inward purpose of their hearts. We don't know their motivations. He's calling us not to make judgments about the heart motives of other people. Secondly, things not to judge. We shouldn't evaluate people or treat them differently based on their outward appearance. James writes, my brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and you pay special attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here, Uh, you sit in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there. Or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Judging based on outward appearance. All forms of racism and racial bias are forms of wrong judging, all ethnic prejudice would be in that same category. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. I believe it was the prophet Samuel that said that. The Lord looks on the heart. We should not evaluate people or treat them differently based on their outward appearance. Another time not to judge. We should not speak evil of other believers. James goes on to write, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, and he's able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Do you know anybody who's just constantly critical of everybody and everything? People like that are just unpleasant to be around often making judgments about the heart and motivations of others because of what they see outwardly. Another time not to judge. We should not evaluate a person's worthiness of our fellowship based on what Paul calls disputable matters. Disputable matters are those things about which we might disagree with other people who say they're Christians, Um, non-essentials of the faith, we could say, your viewpoint of the end times and how that's going to come about. Paul says this, as for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. In the early church, this was an actual issue. Some Christians believed they could, could eat meat, uh, that all foods were okay. Others seemed to be uh, under uh, some constraint to obey certain Old Testament dietary laws, and, and some had the idea they could only eat vegetables. Paul says, "'Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, "'and let not the one who abstains pass judgment "'on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. "'Who are you to pass judgment on the servant?' Of another. Very important verse when we think about when not to judge. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And then finally, something else not to judge. We should not judge the behavior of others when we do the same things. That's pretty obvious, isn't it? Paul writes to the Romans, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Even if you're in the church and you see some glaring flagrant, immorality that should be judged. Don't attempt to do it if you're doing the same thing yourself. Now, let me pause for a moment. I know we've been through a ton of Scripture really, really quickly, I'm sure too quickly this morning. But I'll simply say again, it's extremely important when we talk about judging to interpret Scripture in its context because I think we can see There's a time when believers are called to make judgments. There's a time when we're to judge things. Flagrant issues in the church, false doctrine in the church, even ourselves. But there are many times when Scripture teaches us not to judge. As Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. These things we are not to judge, I think, could be put under the broad umbrella of judgmentalism speaking evil of others, judging motives of the hearts of others, judging people by the way they look, by the way they are dressed, by the way they appear outwardly. This we might call judgmentalism. And I think it's the type of judgment Jesus had in mind when he said, judge not. And so I'd like to point out just very quickly the dangers of judgmentalism. First of all, will be judged in the same way we judge others. Jesus again said, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. We'll be judged in the same way we judge others. Secondly, judgmentalism hinders our ability to see things as they really are, to really clearly understand things. Jesus went on to say in Matthew chapter 7, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, judgmentalism hinders our ability to see things as they really are. And then finally, the judgmental disregard the need that we all have for God's mercy. James says, so speak and so act is those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. I think we can say the law of liberty is a way of speaking of the gospel of Jesus. For judgment is without mercy to one who's shown no mercy. Judgment is without mercy to one who's shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I love that phrase, those four words. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The gospel is the message of mercy triumphing over judgment. We've all sinned, and we all fall short of the glory of God. We, in our humanness, stand before God guilty, sinners. But God, in His great mercy, in His great love, sent Jesus, His Son, the sinless one, God became man, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he lived and he gave his life on the cross to bear the judgment for our sins. As Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him, on the Messiah, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He took our place, he paid the price, he bore our judgment so that through our faith in him we are deemed righteous. As Peter said, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. He took our place, he bore our judgment, he brings us to God. And in Christ, in Christ, mercy, God's mercy triumphs over judgment. And so we're to be people <clears throat> who speak to others and who act toward others as those who are under the mercy of God, the law of liberty. So three questions I'd like to raise by way of application before we close this morning. The first is this. Am I failing to exercise good spiritual leadership by not judging something that should be judged? Maybe you're leading a a small group. Maybe it's a men's group, and um, one of the guys in your group is just uh, openly departing from his wife, committing adultery. Uh, He doesn't use that word. He describes it differently to your group. How do you respond? You know about it. You pat him on the back and say, brother, we're with you, we're behind you, we're behind you, we love you, we pray for peace. No. No. You correct him. You speak the truth in love. You guide him properly. Am I failing to exercise good spiritual leadership by not judging something that should be judged You had a young child doing something horrible that you know was horrible for that child. Would you say, I'm not going to judge that? I'm not going to discipline that? No, you love the child. Love calls us sometimes to make judgments. On the other hand, we should ask ourselves this question. Am I judging someone's motives or worthiness when God has not called me to do that? We don't know the circumstances of a person's life and we don't know what's going on in the heart. Reminds me of the man I read about who's on a crowded subway. He sat down with a book hoping to read for a good block of time when, when another man got on with two little boys and the boys were just going crazy, running around the subway car yelling, screaming, and the dad seemingly was doing nothing to rein them in. And so the guy who wanted to read the book finally went over, the man said, look, can you do something to control your kids I'm trying to read here? And the man said, I'm so sorry. I I apologize. We've just come from the hospital and, and my wife passed and I'm struggling to deal with it and I cannot do anything. It's the only way they know to react right now. They're not old enough to understand. Well, the guy with the book, now he sees things differently. Now he knows. If we knew what God knew, we wouldn't make judgments about the motives of other people. If we saw what God sees and knew what he knows, we might act differently. We might treat others in a more gracious way And then finally, am I sure that I am in the faith? It's a fearful thing to call yourself a Christian and yet not have Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life. As Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? It's a fearful thing to call him Lord falsely on the day of judgment, all of this will be sorted out. And Jesus himself said that many would come to him on that day and would be turned away. And he'll say, depart from me, you who work iniquity. It's important to know you're truly in the faith. You've truly placed your trust in Jesus alone for your salvation. Not that you're perfect, sinless, none of us is. But that we can truly say we've taken the step of faith to put him in the driver's seat in our lives, and our trust is in what he did on the cross for us, not in our efforts to be good enough. Would you join me as we pray? Father, we stand before you completely dependent upon your mercy, your grace. I pray that you would give each person here today or watching us online, an awareness of the need to submit to your lordship and your saving grace, awareness of the reality that Jesus paid it all on the cross, awareness of the need to turn from our efforts to be good enough to what Christ has done and to follow him as Lord. And Lord, we face a lot of questions in life regarding judging. Teach us, Lord, if I've taught anything wrongly, I ask that you would overrule and lead your people in the right way. But illumine our understanding to the truth of your word, that we might honor you and walk faithfully before you. And we pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.